Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. So-and-so took your lunch from the fridge at lunch uh, at work. That's pretty annoying. But maybe that's like a three out of 10. What did you do? You threw your computer out of the room and burned the building down. That's a nine out of 10. So where's that six come from? The, the additional response, where did it come from? And the answer, of course, is it came from the past. And something has happened, which has happened over and over and over again. And there's an accumulation of potential to respond to this trigger, which then all comes out in one go. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. There is a growing recognition that many mental health issues such as depression, anxiety, insomnia, poor cognition and memory, as well as physical issues, are the results of the high prevalence of trauma, post-traumatic stress and adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs. And that only by addressing trauma and rebalancing the nervous system can we address these mental and physical health issues successfully and sustainably. And what I wanted to know from my guest today, Benjamin Fry, a leading psychotherapist in the UK, was what are the signs someone has unhealed trauma in their life? And how can somebody heal from that trauma without necessarily using supplements, medications, or even novel therapeutic agents like psychedelics? Throughout my medical career, I've suspected the role of trauma in the root cause of patients' conditions beyond the diagnosis of typical mental health illnesses like anxiety and depression, but actually in autoimmune conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease and even type 1 diabetes. And so to have the opportunity to explore some of these ideas with Ben today was a pleasure. We discuss internal threats, perception, gratitude, one of my favorite topics, and how we can reframe our natural negative dispositions and why we reflect and respond to trauma differently. Remember, you can watch the podcast on YouTube. Just go to The Doctor's Kitchen on YouTube. You can download The Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store, and you can subscribe to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every single week. I send you something to eat, something to listen to, something to read, some mindfully curated content to help you have a healthier happier week. On to my podcast with Benjamin Fry. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ben, I'm going to ask you a very direct question. What are the signs that somebody has unhealed trauma in their life? Well, it's a great question. Um, probably numerous and multiple and sometimes a little bit baffling. And also things that we've kind of gotten used to and taken for granted and think are normal that probably aren't. Um, I think I'd like to back you up one step and ask the question to you. What is, uh, you know, what do you understand by trauma? Mm. Uh, and you can answer if you like. Or I can answer it for you. you well, I mean, in my the first thing that comes to mind when I think of trauma, having worked for many years in A and E, is physical trauma, right. and being in a trauma centre. Okay. Although I'm widening the aperture of what I understand trauma to encompass, being as much of a mental health issue as it is a, a physical health and the connections between both obviously. So where, I mean, if you think about physical medicine, mm. let's say you're in A&E, what, how do you know something's a trauma injury rather than not? What, what makes that distinction for you there? Yeah, so for, for me, most people come in with a physical injury. So it's something that's kind of, of happened from the outside, yes. is that the idea of what trauma yes. is? Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that's the, 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 uh, the externality. It's mm -hmm. very um, uh, Cartesian, I guess. Right. You know, very and obviously they're unrecovered. Yeah. That's why you see them. It's yeah. like, you know, if a conker hits me on the head yeah. and bounces off, yeah. that's an external event, but so what, no big deal. Yeah. I think it's very much the same in the psychological frame of reference. So interestingly, you'll be aware of, as a GP that the body has these kind of twin currents that are very important called the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And they actually mediate the response to threat in your environment. So uh, the typical arc of a response to threat is, uh, as we might be aware, you know, I get, I get a kind of activation of adrenaline and I get charged up to deal with something. The threat goes away and then I kind of discharge and relax. So you think about you're in the kitchen and you hear a plate break behind you. There's that kind of shock. And you, you can probably notice your heart's racing before your brain is saying, what's this? And everything's slightly out of sync. And you notice there are these different systems running, which is like there's a hardwired response to threat. And then there's a cognitive catch up. And then a kind of story you tell yourself, oh, you know, Bob's always breaking plates in the kitchen and then a calming down. And your brain has said, there's no threat here, long before your heart stops pumping and the adrenals stop. So these, there are these mismatched systems um, in the body, all mediated by different areas of the brain, which you'll know about, like the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. And they're all doing, they're like in parallel circuits, just up to their own thing independently. Interestingly, when we think of psychological trauma, it's a little bit more complex than that because what's happened is that something threatening has occurred. Now, it may be perceived as threatening or actually threatening, it doesn't make any difference. The moment the body is triggered to go into a threat response, we're often running on that arc. And then, as you know, there's a kind of 
override to threat response, which we might call freeze. So when something is so threatening that accelerating the body's response would actually just burn it out, we tend to just give up. And this is usually a response to overwhelming threat. Now, you can think about things like a, a war, where you know, it seems like you're outnumbered and outgunned and it's just a disaster. Or think about something like being a small child, where you literally can't survive without benign parenting. And so any sign that the situation around you is maybe a little bit wonky is actually a life and death threat and can be overwhelming. So freeze happens to different people in different situations for different reasons. The point of it, though, is that in order to complete your response to threat, you have to unfreeze at some point later and go back to the energy of fight and flight, go back to activation and complete the discharge of that. The same way you did in the kitchen when the plate smashed and you uh, felt activated and then you calmed down. This is what you see in mammals in the wild, like a gazelle being chased by a cheetah will uh, freak out and occasionally they get caught and they'll go completely rigid and freeze and sometimes the predator will be disturbed. They will then kick their legs, twitch, run around. Five minutes later, back at the water hole, no, hard, no harm done. So the problem with humans is that we are so complicated that we've actually managed to interrupt our own but normal biological process of a, of a normal arc in responding to threat. And uh, we don't unfreeze very well. And I think the reason for this is that we have an extra layer of mental activity, which I might call self-awareness. So uh, take the example of the gazelle. The lion has moved off. The gazelle is sort of frozen for 90 seconds. And then the biology starts to reboot. And the first thing it does is behave as if a lion is about to eat it because that's what it was doing when it froze. So that's the arc. That's what needs to be completed. Now, if you or me are at the bus stop and we start behaving like we're about to be eaten by a lion, there's, a, there's an observer in us that looks at us and goes, don't be bonkers. This is going to worry the people sitting next to us. What's wrong with it? You're so crazy. Everyone always said you'd be a loser. Oh, my God, your life's a disaster. You'll never get to work and you'll get fired and your girlfriend will leave you and you'll lose your home. And all of that happens in a you know, few moments. And so what we do is we push back. The, you know, from the prefrontal cortex, we push back on the limbic system that's just trying to do what it's been doing for about a million years. and doesn't know any other way of doing it. And you'll know it's called the autonomic nervous system. And autonomic means out of conscious awareness and control. So you have these two currents working, which is the, the million-year-old learned evolutionary arc of response to threat, which is very important because there's nothing more important to evolutionary success than surviving threat and predation. And then you have this more modern, uh, very adaptive response of becoming a, an intelligent, sentient being that can control its environment. I mean, look, you know, the advantage of being human is we control nature rather than we're at the whim of it. But we're now controlling our own nature and screwing it up. Mm. And so what you end up with is you're trying to come out of this well of being frozen, but you just keep dropping yourself back into it. So you try and come out, you keep dropping yourself back into it. So you actually live in a vortex of running away from the gazelle, from the lion forever. And this then impacts into a kind of frozen sense of your biology somewhere. Your biophysiology is altered. But it's also always trying to emerge. So you tend to gravitate towards people, places, and things that are likely to re-stimulate 
the thing that was most difficult for you in the past. And then you're like, well, why is my life go around in circles? Why is everything always like this? Why am I always marrying the same woman? You know, why is it always going? Yeah. Uh, and it's very frustrating. So coming back to your idea of what's, what it's like in A&E, yes, it's uh, probably the genesis of most trauma is an external event, um, just like a, you know, a car accident. But the real key thing is that it's not yet finished. So we talk about PTSD, that's post-traumatic. Post-traumatic means you must have frozen in response to this threat. It's, you will never have PTSD if you never froze. You just, you know, you go up the arc and down the arc and you're good, you're done. And stress disorder means that you're still in a disordered relationship with your stress response system because that threat's not happening right now, but the stress response is still going on. So uh, it's, it's all about the, the impact from the outside, but also the scale and the fact that it's unfinished. So getting back to your actual question, of, you know, what, what, what does trauma look like in daily life? Do you know or have you ever met anyone who seems to respond to something in a slightly exaggerated or understated way? Oh, absolutely. And that's the legacy of trauma, right? Because if, you're, if you've got a completely clear system, the kind of homeostasis that you would hope to be born with, your response to external stimuli will, will match. Be, if you're slightly annoying, I'll be slightly annoyed. If you're hugely annoying, I'll be hugely annoyed, and so on. And you can see this in relationships so clearly, is that some people are always like over the top, some people are kind of totally shut down. Um, and these are disordered responses to the actual level of threat in your environment. You can even think about it kind of quasi-mathematically. You can think, well, what's the scale of this trigger? And you could ask a friend. You could take, I mean, it's why groups are great processes for this. You say, well, you know, okay, so so-and-so took your lunch from the fridge at lunch uh, at work. That's pretty annoying. But maybe that's like a three out of 10. And what did you do? You threw your computer out of the room and burned the building down. That's a nine out of 10. So where's that six come from? The, the additional response, where did it come from? And the answer, of course, is it came from the past and something has happened, which has happened over and over and over again. And there's an accumulation of potential to respond to this trigger, which then all comes out in one go. So that's kind of the first layer. It's like my, my thinking and my behavior and my reactions to things are either overblown because everything comes up all at once or underblown because everything really comes up all at once and once again I'm tripped over my switch and I go into freeze. Um, but then what does that do to a person's life? Well, one of the things it does is it makes us, it makes us have a slightly skew-if relationship with reality because the only way I can think I'm not crazy is by believing that the danger is really happening right now. Otherwise, I, if, if I'm feeling like I've got a 9 out of 10 reaction to you, and everyone's telling me that ah, it's not that big a deal, then I'm going to feel that I'm the problem. And people don't like that. So there's a lot of projection. Um, there's a lot of uh, self-deception, I suppose. And then what you'll usually see is that this creates difficulty in relationships. So it's quite hard to be in relationship with someone who thinks that you're a huge threat or is kind of so shut down that you get nothing back from them. Even when you're annoying them, you get nothing back. Because you know, sometimes people are trying to make a bid for connection by being provocative and you get nothing back. Uh, so if you've screwed up your, <clears throat> your biology, your sense of reality, 
your ability to have relationships uh, in the broader sense. I mean, like you can't hold down a job because you so hate your boss because he's reminds you of your father and that's unfinished, stuff like that. Um, you just have multiple problems in your life and, and life gets more difficult. And the tragic thing is that those are all the things which can contribute to creating a sense of safety in an adult's life. So if I have a good career, if I have good relationships, I have good health, I have good sleep, all these things, it's a virtuous circle to having a better regulated nervous system. Take them all away and life really does become more challenging and really does become less safe. And then the wrinkles in what I would call my dysregulated nervous system or what you might think of as a lack of homeostasis in the autonomic nervous system, those wrinkles are just exaggerated by real, again, real events from the outside. Like the car crash happens every single day. Um, so this is why I think it can be so pernicious is that if we, and if you just get down the wrong side of the mountain, the ball just keeps rolling. And what we want to do is help people to find strategies and treatments to help their nervous system become better regulated, restore a sense of homeostasis, make it easier for them to live with themselves and live with others and live a productive cooperative life in the world, uh, and thereby establish a little bit more robustness from the outside, which then gets mirrored as you grow robustness on the inside, which interestingly is kind of like what people hope for uh, to give children, infants, yeah. is that there's a, there's a sort of maternal um, bubble mm. that holds while they grow and learn from that example. And then there's an internal boundary that, that comes into play somewhere in childhood and people start to be able to hold themselves. Yeah. So once you've lost your holding inside and outside, you're in trouble. And at the most extreme end of that, that's why I think it's, uh, it's necessary to do residential treatment sometimes for people, because you literally have to kind of create a new sense of holding. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to build the layers from the outside in. Does any of that make any sense? That makes sense okay. to me. I want to get to the different modalities of treatment on the one side being perhaps the most extreme because I can't find another word being residential I guess where you yeah. have to really take a, a, a truly holistic um, uh, treatment modality versus some other practices that perhaps somebody could do mm -hmm. with the guidance of uh, a practitioner or even even simpler than that an app or some uh, some reading materials um, to summarize what you were talking about um, in terms of the way in which we process emotions, it sounds like there are advantages of being human because we're sentient and we can interrupt certain cycles. Whereas for lesser developed mammals, there is a normal sort of uh, response to threats and then a dissipation of that energy uh, after the threat has, has gone. Whereas we have the option uh, of holding on to that threat and it's something that can stay with us for months, years, entire lifetimes. At the two ends of the extremes there, you might have somebody who has PTSD from what many people would regard as a very stressful event. But then you also have levels of similar responses uh, that you might expect from an extreme event, but from something that's slightly more subtle. And I wonder if there are ways in which people perhaps listening or watching this can determine if they have unhealed trauma in their life in the most subtlest sense as well. And what are the 
physical and mental manifestations of that beyond the throwing the computer out the window and burning the building down that perhaps are a little bit more insidious um, and perhaps something that you wouldn't initially think of as, as necessarily trauma? Sure. I mean, in a way, it's a good question because look, probably everyone has unfinished yeah. response to threat somewhere in their system. So the question is, when does it really matter and mm. when is it really a problem? Um, most of what we think of as fairly complicated and severe mental illness is probably sitting on top of a reservoir of uh, quite disruptive um, body physiology due to this trauma mechanism. So that's probably at the you know that extreme uh, people who present to like psychiatric hospitals, many of them will be dealing with the legacy of these problems. Then you come right out to the other end of the spectrum where people are having hugely productive, mainly happy lives, but they might find that there's some very specific wrinkles that are very difficult, like they really struggle with, say, their relationship with food, or they really struggle with their, their romantic relationship, or they've got one child that drives them mad. Or, you know, there are these things that seem like outliers. And I think in anything where you find that your, your response to life is quite strong, there's an opportunity to investigate. Is this me or is this the world? Um, and obviously you can take a consensus from other people, you know, is my husband really that awful? Um, you might get many different responses. But interestingly, I think that the, there's, there's kind of like a spiritual discipline of uh, how many fingers do I want to point out versus how many fingers do I want to point in and what do I want to look at? And I think for people in the, in, the, in the spectrum of just normal daily life, you can do a lot to shift the needle. Because if we think about this problem as being effectively a battle between the mammal and the reptile part of the brain and the human part of the brain, uh, which is often called the limbic system and prefrontal cortex, we spend an enormous amount of our bandwidth and energy fueling the prefrontal cortex. We're very, very pleased with ourselves and pleased with our ability to think. And we sit and we have like internal monologues with ourselves and dialogues all the time. This is what we're always doing. And it leaves very little room for other processes that are lower in the brainstem and more connected with the body to occur. So there's been a, a massive uptake in things like mindfulness and meditation in the last decade or two. I would see this as a direct correlation to people beginning to realize or discover that actually the more you quieten the prefrontal cortex and the more you allow the rest of the body to have a bit of bandwidth, that things get better, things get easier. The body has its own wisdom. The wonderful thing about this is that anything that has been emerging through evolution for a million years is ready to go. You just have to get out of its way. And the first thing you do with the prefrontal cortex is you educate it it loves to learn. It loves to understand the causality, the etiology. This is what we're doing right now. Anyone listening to this who doesn't know this already is actually reprogramming their prefrontal cortex to be a bit more forgiving when they're trying to maybe release or complete some experience they've had in the past. Um, so I think you're asking kind of what could people do or what, what could people notice that they might need to do? It slightly depends on the severity of the problems you're experiencing in life. Um, I think you can start with self-help. 
So you can start with this. This kind of psychoeducation is great. And if you know people want to look at my website and see more information, which is all free, that's great. Uh, then you can start to take action on things like that. So if it appeals to you, if the if the theory kind of grabs you, you think, oh yeah, this sounds like me. And you think, well, what can I do about this? And so things like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, tai chi, anything that quietens the mind and gets the body back um, online is usually quite helpful. You kind of see, does this, is this contributing to me being more regulated? Is this contributing to me being uh, more in sync with my environment? Are my reactions more appropriate and more proportional to what's really going on? that's a sign that you needed extra regulation, right? You needed extra holding in that space. Then if you're interested, you can start to think, well, where does this really come from? Because it's one thing to be successfully plugging the leak in the dam. It's another thing to have a dam that doesn't have any leaks in it at all. So then you can go a bit deeper. Usually, uh, I mean, I think if, you're, um, if you meditate up a mountain in a cave for 25 years, the system will deepen and do this automatically. But I think a lot of people like to have a bit of help. Yeah. Um, so you can access things like somatic referencing therapies, like somatic experiencing or sensory motor psychotherapy, or even EMDR is the same channel. Um, what, what are those for people? That well, they're, they're psychotherapies. So you would be sitting like you and me talking, but I would be more likely to say to you, rather than what are you feeling or what are you thinking, what sensations you're aware of. So we'd actually be using the wisdom of your body to connect over time to the events that are unfinished in your, in your body, in your nervous system. Um, you can also access these kind of things in groups, which I think is very powerful. The problem is that these are fairly specialist modalities and they're not really available at scale and they're certainly not always free or cheap. So the best thing, if you can't access them, is to really help your prefrontal cortex learn what it is you would be trying to do for yourself and then try and do it. And, uh, you know, things like nutrition are also very important. If you're not driving signals of threat through eating toxic substances or eating things that overwhelm your nervous system, then you'll be creating space for these things to emerge. But here's the bad news. If you think that the problem is an unfinished response to an overwhelming threat, what do you think the solution is going to feel like? once you start making some progress. What it's gonna feel like is I'm two years old, and I'm experiencing an overwhelming threat and nobody wants to go there. Yeah. So once you start to withdraw the things that keep us from ourselves, then uh, the healing emerges. The healing is not always easy yeah. or, or pleasant. So there's a lot of resistance. I mean, we all know we should like sleep more, exercise, eat well, yeah. meditate, but why don't we do it? multiple reasons perhaps but i think one of the deeper reasons is that actually it will it will introduce us to ourselves and the places in us that we've been running from for our whole lives nonetheless that that's a short-term problem and if you can stick with it you've got a long-term gain there's a couple of points i want to pick up on there um you mentioned uh what i heard is being more intuitive about how your body truly is physically and, and uh, from a psychological point of view, how you're feeling on a day-to-day -day basis, which is why meditation modalities are so um, popular right now. And I think even more so given the number of distractions we have, whether it's music, social media, email, et cetera, et cetera, we're becoming more disconnected from actually how we feel. 
and there are less moments in our 24-hour uh, day cycle where we have the opportunity to sit down and be quiet and just breathe, for example. The other thing um, is that it is quite uncomfortable to do some of these practices like you've just talked about. It's easier to uh, expect a pill or expect uh, something else that is slightly more acceptable, improving one's diet, improving one's sleep and going to the gym a bit more as a mechanism, as a treatment, uh, rather than you know doing the more uncomfortable work of perhaps revisiting experiences in the past. And I wonder how people approach that in your experience. I mean, for sure, even myself, I approach it with a lot of hesitation because it is painful and uncomfortable. Is this something that you think is becoming a lot more popular? And I guess the other question to that is, can you treat the most severe conditions with the this kind of uh, treatment, revisiting the traumatic experiences and, and completing the cycle, so to speak? Well, look, I'm a living example of that. I mean, I would say my life was saved by this work. And 12 years ago, I was just sort of beyond, beyond anxious. And I had a very extended nervous breakdown for about a year. And I ended up in a clinic in Arizona for five months, which is where I discovered this kind of work. Um, and, you know, I went to the fancy hospitals. I went to the fancy doctors. I, that all was a disaster. And I mean, I went to everything. I went to the faith healer. I went to the witch doctor. And there was as many opinions about what was wrong with me as there were people that I could go and ask. Um, it turned out they were basically all wrong. And that I had PTSD from my early childhood. Um, which had kind of flared up as I approached 40. And life on the outside was genuinely complicated and difficult. Um, it was a time of that global financial crash in like 2008-9, which had affected me and I had a young family. And, you know, it was just normal things that people survive when they've got an intact basement. But I didn't have an intact basement. My mother died when I was a baby and there was all that waiting to be dealt with. So for me, the only thing that helped me in the most serious mental health crisis I could imagine surviving was somatic therapies. Um, I had a little bit of medication, but I was very, very sensitive to medication. So a lot of time people with trauma are because their, their injury effectively is things have happened to them from the outside. And medication can feel like something you get very hypervigilant about because it's a change. Right? It doesn't feel good. So, yes, I mean, I would say these are, I mean, these are very appropriate modalities for very severely affected people. But before you can, if you like, um, move on from the past, you have to stabilize the system enough to be able to bear, to kind of briefly, even momentarily revisit and to resolve things. And yet at, at the most uh, unsevere level, these things have a lot to be recommended for them as well. I think that there's, there's a distinction to be made between kind of managing a problem and removing a problem. So if you just think about it in a different way, you might have, say, uh, a thorn in your foot, right? And it's making you uncomfortable. So you might go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you've got thorn in your foot disorder and what you should need to do is get some nice soft crocs and put an ointment on your toe every day and maybe occasionally you need a bit of antiseptic 
and you manage and it's okay and life goes on and you can now you know, function again. But it's um, probably intuitively more attractive to have someone to remove the thorn from your foot. And a lot of the problem with mental health, um, well, mental health medicine, if you like, is that we have a thing called the DSM-5 or um, and there are other, other ICD, exactly. And what it does is it codifies symptoms into disorders, but they tend to be just the disorders labeling the symptoms. So when I went to hospital, I spilled my guts to the medical director and he's like, right, well, you've got general anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. And I said, I know, I've just told you, but what's wrong with me? And he said, no, no, you don't understand. You have generalized anxiety disorder. And he actually literally, I was there with my wife at the time, he said, we were so disbelieving of this, the low tech response. He said, look, it's in a book. I can get it for you and show it to you. Um, and that's when I realized I was really in trouble because I thought if I go to a hospital, they might be able to help. And that was a problem. So I think the great thing about all of these ideas as they relate to mental health is that you get an etiological story. This is no longer just a, a sweeping up of your symptoms into a label with some capital letters. We can actually say, here's, here's something that makes sense to us causally. You've got a body, it has these components in it, you have a history, the components of malfunction relative to each other. And the natural consequence of that would be, you would either be overreactive or underreactive. And look, your body is, your behavior is, your thinking is, your reality is. And guess what, even in, even in a session, even in a group session, you can take someone from being obsessed about say, you know, my ex-boyfriend and return them into working through the body to resolve something, to discharge something briefly. And you can see that the power of that obsession moving from a nine out of 10 to a three out of 10 in 10 minutes. And that's just not possible with any other kind of explanation. I mean, you couldn't do that with medication. I don't think you can even do it with CBT. It's like, the power of us, the, the power we have to dysregulate ourselves from being not connected to these original injuries is, is phenomenal. And you know the body has enormous power. I mean, the, the, the things that can go on in the physiology from a shift in awareness from this is the nicest, most safest, most cozy place I've ever been in, so I'm in the wilderness and a lion is chasing me. I mean, if you're an alien and you visited Earth and you saw those two humans in those two different states, you would think these cannot be related. Mm. These are not things that seem to have anything in common with each other. Someone like smiling, laughing, cuddling, sleeping, and someone wildly running for their life, manically trying to destroy another organism to survive. You know, the, the strength of that in the body is that, I mean, that's the extremes of it, right? And so what we're talking about, we're talking about that spectrum, but we're wandering around Westminster ordering a sandwich. And that can get really complicated. You mentioned your own experience having a nervous breakdown a few years ago now. You mentioned the loss of your mother uh, in your childhood. What Would you have recognized those traumatic experiences prior to your breakdown around the global financial crisis and and can you speak to a, a bit more about those those experiences that you um you had that could have been the foundation for what you experienced later in life even my early childhood 
Yeah, so, you know, my, my mother got ill with aplastic anemia when I was a few months old and then died when I was 11 months old. And I was the only child and my father was young. And so I went to live with another family for a year and then he remarried. I went back to live with them a couple of years later after that. So there's a lot of disruption, a lot of attachments broken, um, a lot of moving house. And as you probably know, people say, look, if you can get the first three years okay for a child, they've got a reasonably good platform for things that are difficult later on. First three years of my life were not great. Mm. I mean, they were sort of almost prescriptively the opposite of great. So uh, that was all that was all there waiting to, you know, bite me as as I grew up and got older. Um, and in terms of what happened when I got older, nothing so out of the ordinary, you know, it was just like life. I mean, life gets more stressful as you get older. If you get married, you have children or you buy a house or you, you know, you work and everything gets just a little bit more acute, right? So ideally, your childhood is a preparation for your nervous system to become more and more robust and for your regulation to be a little bit more stronger and for you to understand where your internal resources are for dealing with threat because you had great external resources that modeled it for you. I didn't really get that piece. But I did later on um, think I was amazing because I went to like great schools. I went to Oxford. The world was my oyster, right? So it's a very bad combination to be expecting everything to be easy and to actually find everything overwhelmingly difficult um, and to not know why. And to your question of did I really understand all of this? I mean, look, embarrassingly, I'm a trained psychotherapist and I was a trained psychotherapist before I had a nervous breakdown. Obviously, I knew that, um, you know, if you asked the classic Freudian question, tell me about your mother, it was not going to be a great story. So I knew I had, I had a legacy of trouble, but I didn't understand how it became so biophysiological, how it was so in the body, how it was something that could not be um, within my grasp to just take control of. And people say, well, just stop worrying about it. You know, you'll just, just get a job or just, it's like, yeah, I'd love to. Nothing I would love more than just to stop worrying about it. But meanwhile, there was an engine that was loose inside my body that could not stop. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't think and I couldn't relate and I couldn't laugh. I couldn't do anything. Um, and there's nothing I could do about it just by wanting to because I was addressing the wrong system. It's a bit like you've got a car and you're obsessed with putting water in the radiator to fix the fact that the, fly, the, the tires are flat. It's just never going to work. However good you are at dealing with radiators, if you're in the wrong system, there's nothing you can do there. So, for example, CBT for um, what I was going through, just hopelessly mismatched. I needed to get into the place that was the opposite of where CBT works, which is the, uh, the nonverbal space in the brain. And, and actually, once we, once we got going there, I mean, I was very badly ill for over a year. And I was, you know, within, I guess, two, three, four weeks beginning to have a strong recovery and I remember I went so I went to this clinic in America and there was like this big hospital type piece of it and then the aftercare unit was where they did the trauma work which I kind of accidentally ended up in um, and so when I went there I was in extremely bad shape and I was initially admitted to like the nursing unit the nurses station and then when I was later on like a couple of months later 
um, I was in the aftercare unit and we would go out shopping as a gang to go and buy food and stuff in a sort of bus driven by some colourful local characters. The highlight of our week is so exciting. So we're going to this enormous cathedral of food, which is called a supermarket in America, and uh, bumped into this lady in the kind of processed meat aisle. And she just looked at me, she's like, Benjamin? I was like, yeah. And I was just hanging out with my roommate and we were chatting and laughing. She's like, she looked at me, she's like, Benjamin? I was like, yes, I'm sorry, do we know each other? Yeah. I said, yes, I'm Mary, I'm one of the nurses. I was like, oh yeah, okay. And she started crying. And I was like, what's wrong? She's like, I can't believe how well you're doing. I can't believe that you're okay. I honestly thought you were gonna die. She's like, I've rarely seen anyone in bad shape as you. And this is like two months later, I'm in the processed meats aisle of the local supermarket, <laughs> cracking gags with my roommate. I mean, obviously I'm still struggling a lot, but yeah. I'm on the way, yeah. right? And all we've done is somatic psychotherapy, EMDR, somatic experiencing, bit of group work. And this is what's so, in a way, terrifying about the mental health treatment spectrum is that if you can just find the right explanation of the problem, then that leads to the right treatment for the yeah. problem, which can often lead to recovery. It's a bit like, you know, you, normal medicine, branch of like general practice. Typically someone comes with something, you're like, yeah, we know what this is. We know what causes it. So because we know what causes it, we know how to fix it. If you know how to fix it, you can help people quickly. But if they come in and you're like, I have no idea what this is. And you know, it's a much more longer, sadder, more painful journey that you both have to go on as a clinician and as a patient. Mm. And I, I do worry that the tragedy of mental health is that, I mean, in general practice, you'll have this idea of medically unexplained symptoms, right? It's a sort of basket of yeah. stuff where it's like, I don't really know what's wrong with you, so we'll have to investigate. Yeah. I actually think that mental health is a, is a flawed concept. I think mental health is another, is another umbrella term for medically unexplained symptoms. I don't think it's... I think it's smoke and mirrors. I don't think it really has adopted a proper medical method in terms of let's really understand the mechanism and then let's design treatments and let's see what works. It's just like we randomly try this stuff and we research it and we come up with statistics and we think that we're doing better and it's okay. Which I understand. I mean, it's very, very punishing to be on the treatment side and for people to come and, and to be just able to say, we don't really know what's wrong with you, but we'll try something. Um, but I kind of think that's where we are with mental health. And the nice thing is that thing, these emerging ideas, which really come out of pioneers in America, people like Bessel van der Kolk or Stephen Porges or Peter Levine, which you may or may not know about, they're, they're kind of psychotherapy 2.0. They're saying, okay, it's not all about, tell me a story about your mother. The, the work is not in the narrative. The work is in the consequence for the physiology. And can we go into, can we connect your prefrontal cortex with your limbic system in a way where they can collaborate to clean up your physiology and to move on from the narrative of your past? Because what you want, people say, oh, you know, endlessly trying to make me talk about my past because you're a therapist. Yeah. What I actually want is for people to no longer be living the past in the room right now. So the body is no longer living in the vortex of a trauma response and the past becomes exactly that. It becomes the past, it becomes a memory, it becomes a story you could tell or not tell and it's not that big a deal. 
But if you know, if you think about something, you talk about something and you're having a physiological reaction, either you're shutting down, you're getting activated, it's not over. Mm. It's not over yet. And that's something that you're going to carry with you. And it may be explicit when someone triggers it, but it's always in there implicitly anyway, affecting everything in your life. So, um, you know, my thesis about mental health is that it's really a concept that ideally we would drop. If you could get to the point where you think, well, trauma is not a mental health problem, trauma is in the body. And the body is something measurable. The body is something, I mean, you can autopsy a body and take out the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. You can't take out worry. You can't take out the mental. You can't take out the mind. You know, these things are just ideas. And they're very seductive ideas. We're all, we all think we have a mind. We're all uh, in love with our thoughts. We're all in love with our personality, our ego. Um, but these things are, you know, they're really, they're ideas versus biochemistry is real. So if my heart rate is elevated, it's a real thing that I can know about and measure. And they're all connected, they're all linked. I feel like the conversation around trauma usually comes about when we are retrospectively trying to understand the manifestation of symptoms. So if somebody uh, gets diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, why? Uh, why did that happen? We can explain it through um, in, in medicine, you know, did you have a prior infection that uh, disrupted your immune system? Do you have a genetic predisposition? And then trauma and those sort of experiences are also sort of laid on top of that. It's always backward looking. Let's look at your time and let's figure out, you know, if there are any patterns that can explain the, those, those symptoms that you're experiencing or the diagnosis or whatever that, that might be. I wonder if there are practices that people can do more proactively to determine if there are any experiences that could lead to something, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point in the future, that leaves them with some vulnerability that they can preemptively practice some of these tools that we've been talking about before it gets to a head where you have a nervous breakdown, where you have uh, a series of events where you're chucking things out the window or you turn to alcohol or other substances to cope. I wonder if there are things that people can, questions that they can ask themselves today to preempt any of those issues in the future. Yeah, look, I mean, you've got two parts of this, right? One is, could I do an inventory? You know, could I kind of go through and think, is there likely to have been any problem that could uh, be tripping me up now or in the future? Um, and then the other part is, well, what could I do about it if it was? Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of inventory, just think, go back to what we said at the beginning about the nervous system model of response to danger, response to threat. The most important thing to ask yourself is, for me, for my brain, culture, biology, position in the world, what is a cue of safety and what is a cue of danger, right? So, and that'll be a different answer for everyone. And it's even different in different cultures, different countries. Um, but it, and you should never accept someone else's version of what is your cue of safety. It's really important. And then start to think, how have I done with that? 
from birth to now? You know, how's that gone for me? And you'll, you'll start to see that things that could have seemed fairly normal, fairly benign, because the, the outside world will tell you they're normal, they're benign. They probably just didn't quite work for you. Um, and, uh, you know, you can get a little bit, I mean, you can sometimes be a bit punishing. I've seen Gabor Mate, for example, say, like, everyone has trauma. Put your hand up if you didn't have a difficult childhood. In three minutes, I'll persuade you you're wrong. And I've seen him do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which is fine. But, you know, you ask someone a question like, well, uh, someone said, well, my dad was a great guy. He worked really hard, but he provided for us. And he said, well, how, how much was he around? He said, well, not much. He was always at work. He said, well, did that work for you? Did you want your father to be around? Well, ideally, you know, it would have been nicer if he'd been around more. He said, well, would you have felt safer if your dad had been around? I said, yeah, probably, yeah. So immediately you begin to understand that although the cultural association is, this was a great guy who really did what was expected from him and uh, took care of us really well. Actually, in terms of the constellation of my nervous system, I'd have felt safer if he'd been around. And so everything is about what Stephen Paul just calls a new reception of uh, safety and threat. Cues of danger, cues of safety. So inventory that in your life. First of all, ask yourself, what makes me feel safe today? And write a long list. And then ask yourself, how did that go? And where have I not, where has that not worked for me? Not for others or, you know, where my others have said that that's wrong or that's not the right way to look at the world. But where has that not worked for me is quite important. So let's say you come up with some stuff and you're like, well, you know, let me take that example, like, you know, my amazing um, corporate father who did so well in the world and, and for us uh, actually left me with maybe a deficit of feeling unsafe when I'm not um, protected, for example. What do you do about that? Well, then it gets more multifaceted. There's so many things you could do and it slightly depends on what appeals to you, how urgent it is, what the scale of the problem is. Um, but the beginning is to re-educate your prefrontal cortex, re-educate your brain, and to tell yourself that actually this is something to watch out for. So maybe this will flare up in, in different contexts. Maybe you, know, you work in an office and you find that you get really agitated when a certain constellation of things happens in the team. And maybe it's that your boss kind of gives you a job to do and then kind of leaves you unsupervised and expects a result, but doesn't really help you do it. Why is that bothering you so much? And you can start to see, well, maybe that's bothering me so much because there's a kind of echo here. There's a kind of uh, almost a trauma repetition. And the great hope of this kind of way of looking at life is that actually there's the gold. Most people in that experience will be like, I hate this experience. I want to get a different job or a different boss. But if you really understand what's going on, there's the gold because there's your opportunity to start to work on the stuff that's frozen that otherwise is inaccessible. And so it'll be agitated. And if you can then have a practice that can help you work with that. So, you know, the classics of mindfulness and meditation, yoga and Tai Chi, all these things help you give space and bandwidth to the limbic system, the mammal system, the reptile system to begin to allow that stuff to clear and to calm. Um, and then you're in the right place, but you have to have this collaboration. You have to begin a collaboration between these warring factions of the, the human brain and the mammal and the reptile brain. And it's a bit like, I mean, so people often think I am one thing, right? I, I am me, I am one. But we're not, we're, we have hundreds of different decision centers in the brain, as you'll know. 
And it's a bit like the House of Parliament, just around the corner from here. You've got like hundreds of people yelling, braying, like begging for blood and wanting their particular uh, fascination to be acted on by the government. In the end of all of that, there's just one decision. So the brain is doing not much more than directing movement, right? It's directing my voice box right now. It's just, it's all it ever does is eventually decide we're gonna move that bit to there. The, the decision-making that goes into that is like this enormous fractured Houses of Commons. And what you need is a coalition government, right? So you need to have proportional representation. You need to have coalitions. You need to build consensus. You need to get these people talking to each other in a calm, helpful, constructive way so that the decision that comes out represents the needs of everyone and not just... I mean, look, in our post-Cartesian world, we tend to be just fascinated with the thinking part of the brain. And we even think that is the whole brain, but it isn't. And if you can't give space to the minority parties in the parliament of your head, then clearly, you know, parts of the population are just going to suffer. Yeah. I love this analogy. This is a great analogy. You should definitely use this again <laughs> if you haven't already. <laughs> sure. Well, it's... Uh, uh, you know, I think it's very apt. Yeah. Um, people who study the brain, they know that the brain is like all these different bits that have been cobbled together over like a million years. A bit like, there's your computer. You know that software has been developed over 30, 40 years. And some of it doesn't play so well with each other. And eventually, a computer becomes kind of useless because it's so amazing. It just clogs itself up. And humans are the same. You know, we've become so complicated and exciting that we just conflict the different, piece, the different pieces that work really well on their own are now in conflict. Um, and a lot of the project of, of physical and therefore mental health, I think, is about creating harmony and integration between different systems. I mean, to put it in a different way, so the concept of homeostasis, which you'll know from medicine, um, is uh, like, a, here's a simple example, like body temperature. It goes up a bit, it goes down a bit, but if you took an average, it's always in the same place. Now, homeostasis is Greek for the same place. Homeostasis literally means the same place. Now, if you interrupt the homeostasis of one system in the body, I don't know how many systems there are, you'll tell me as a doctor, but I'm guessing like, you know, five dozen, maybe. You know, there's all these things like blood pressure, heart rate, all that stuff. And they're all symbiotically kind of gently balanced against one another. Now, imagine you interrupt one. It's just the knock-on effect starts to knock, knock, knock. I never quite to recover. And then you're playing catch up over there and you're playing catch up over there, you're playing catch up over there. And the ultimate consequence of this is you end up in the GP's office saying, I've got this problem. And then they do an investigation on that one system. And they say, oh, you've got an autoimmune disease. We'll fix that with this one drug, right? And then you fix that, but you knock it on to the next system, which lacks homeostasis. And if you think about the trilogy of mind, body, spirit, think about like a Venn diagram, in the middle where they all meet, I think that's all about the loss of homeostasis. Because actually the history of healthcare is a history of mind, body, spirit. Because I don't know, 2000 years ago, you might be sent to the local witch doctor or the priest when you had a problem. So everything was conceived of in terms of a kind of quasi-spiritual problem, you know, relationship with your God, yourself, your community, etc. Maybe your behavior, you know, a lot of spiritual Traditions tell you what to do and not do. It's not all about like hang out with God. It's like don't be an ass and clean your food, you know, stuff like that. 
Um, and then we came into this post-Cartesian age of enlightenment where we'll see the body as a machine. Ah, oh, look, we can invent machines. So we look like a machine. So we must be a machine. So let's tinker with this bit, tinker with that bit. You know, the tire's flat, fill the tire with air. We didn't really understand these things were connected anymore. And then, you know, over a hundred years ago, you had this very special doctor in Vienna who said, actually, these things are no longer um, medical problems. These are mental health problems. And I am Freud and you shall listen to me now forever. Um, so you, you get these kind of divisions between mind, body and spirit. But really, if you, I think if you were really to look back in a thousand years and say, well, what did these things all have in common? Why were they parceled around in different places? They're just different ways of understanding that a system is out of balance. Yeah. And in the middle of treating that what they have in common is lack of balance, lack of homeostasis. And I think that the lack of homeostasis in the nervous system is one of the most fundamental drivers for problems throughout the entire system, simply because there is nothing more important in evolution than survival. And so if you think about all the mammals, all the species that are on the planet right now are the ones that got best at surviving. So it became their priority. Otherwise, they'd all be dead. And they might be much happier and have much better lives, but they're all dead, so they're not here. We are basically a bunch of organisms that specialized in surviving as a priority over all other things. It's more important to live than to be healthy than to be happy. And I think that when you, when you, when you interrupt that piece, you interrupt every piece because it's the fundamental driver of life yeah. is survival. I think that's a very important point you just made there. Um, it's from an evolutionary point of view more important to live than it is to be healthy and happy and that's a you know an uncomfortable truth and i always try to look at disease through the lens of evolution but also assess individual diagnoses through the imbalance in nutrition sleep but also purpose community emotional health etc and i think events that we're becoming a lot more popular lifestyle medicine events personalized medicine events are piecing the dots together of all these different features of health that have been traditionally separated because of whatever reason it might have been. And I guess, you know, in that toolbox of people's uh, understanding of how they can better themselves and prevent issues from occurring down the line, taking inventory, I think is brilliant. Reframing something I do myself quite often, you know, if somebody um, cuts me off on the road or whatever, instead of me having my initial reaction of what an asshole mm -hmm. i tell myself the story of or maybe he's just in a rush because he needs to make an important phone call he's gonna uh he or she is gonna go see their child who's unwell at home or you know making a putting a positive light on everything i'm a typical glass half full kind of guy um are there tools that we can lean into that paint a positive more rosy picture of the day-to-day -day without this leading down the path of toxic positivity you know just putting a rose on a lens on, on everything are there things that we can lean into in the very smallest instances on a day-to-day -day basis that compound to have a, a great effect that allows us to lead a healthy happy life as well as living look i think you give a really good example um, if I can link that with what we've been talking about, imagine taking a cue of danger and turning it into a cue of safety. That will profoundly alter your biochemical relationship with that thought and that event and that environment. So 
I, yes, I could. I mean, look, it's inevitably an, a, a queue of danger when someone cuts you off in traffic because we're hypervigilant when we drive. We don't want to crash. We don't want to injure ourselves or others. So when someone interrupts our ability to control that, we get agitated. That's normal. Um, now, what can you do with that? What can you do with that agitation, that triggering? Well, you can reframe it, as you say. And this is one of the successes of CBT. I mean, CBT is sort of successful despite itself. It doesn't really understand why it's successful. But really what it's doing is mediating cues of danger that can come from the inside. Because paradoxically, one of the most dangerous things we can do is create internal threat. I mean, I say to myself, uh, I'm going to lose my job and never get another job. I'm feeling terrible. Yeah. Now, Underneath the waterline, there's probably a lot more to that story. And so it's a bit punishing to say, oh, just stop thinking like that and everything yeah. will be fine, because you really want to go deeper and find out. But in the moment, uh, a reframe can be helpful. So you know, what's a cue of danger in that situation? This, this idiot's going to crash into me. Right? Perfectly reasonable to, to be agitated by that. What would be a reframe that would give you a cue of safety? Well, first of all, he didn't crash into me. Um, he's being a bit of an ass, but he's not crazy. He's not like a, a murdering psychotic in charge of a car. Mm. Secondly, my car's really safe and I've got 14 airbags in here and it's all good. And also, as you mentioned, thirdly, intention. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to kill me. He's just late for work. He doesn't even know I'm here. Yeah. You know? So you start to comfort yourself. And these are the self-soothing uh, processes that infants learn. Right? Infants go from being soothed by their mother to becoming toddlers who can occasionally soothe themselves, becoming children who become more robust and have more of a sort of internal sense that, yes, there are some dangers out there, but there's an awful lot of safety in here because I'm good with me. I'm, I'm fundamentally optimistic. I feel good within myself. I believe that the good things can happen as well as bad things. And occasionally someone else has a problem. And you notice the difference between that and something happens over there and it's all about me. I'm a terrible person. I'm bad. My life's going to collapse. Uh, the world is going to, the sky is going to fall in on my head. Um, but if you, if you use that metric, what feels safe, what's, what feels like a threat, then I think you can understand the shift you're trying to achieve. Sometimes just a reframe is like, well, I can reframe this a thousand different ways. Which way is useful? The most useful way is the way that makes you feel most safe. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a being um, intuitive to what your safety and danger cues are and what the best way is to personally reframe it for whatever suits your. Yes, but intuitive might be the wrong word because for people who've suffered from trauma, this has been scrambled. They've been taught that things that don't feel safe for them should be okay for them. So you actually have to get quite explicit and, and be quite diligent in uh, inventorying what you really, really, really think is your requirement for feeling safe. This is where the concept of boundaries should come from. You've probably heard a lot about boundaries. Um, it's often referenced in addiction treatment. My issue with that is that people often take it as something you can fail me on, right? So there's this sort of line like, well, you, you know, you transgress all my boundaries, you're a bad person. The point of a boundary is that I know what works for me. I know what my cue of safety is. I know what my cue of danger is. I will manage myself to stay as far away from threat and as close to safety as possible. So if I tell you, look, it would really work better for me if you don't wear a blue shirt. 
and you continually wear a blue shirt. And I just sit here and complain that, you know, I'm now miserable because you don't listen to me and you wear a blue shirt. I'm not taking action. I'm not looking after myself. I'm just back in the vortex of trauma where life happened to me. What I need to do is say, I don't do well around people with blue shirts. I'm around someone with a blue shirt. I'm not going to do well. I got to get out of here, right? It's not up to you to be persuaded by me to look after my nervous system. It's up to me to take action to look after my nervous system. And that's a key shift for people who've had uh, particularly traumatic childhoods, is that that sense of agency has been robbed from them. So recovering what's okay for you and recovering agency to, to make sure that what's okay for you is what you're around and what's not okay for you is what you're not around. Ah, it sounds trivial, but it's a huge piece of work, but it can be massively empowering both for your sense of uh, well-being in life, but also for the internal sense of regulation of your nervous system. If um, there is a piece of advice, I know that we've been talking quite a lot around all the different tools that we should be leaning into and practices, but if there is a piece of advice that you have for anyone listening to this who might now, at the end of our conversation, realize where they might have periods of trauma or episodes of trauma in their life, what sort of tips would you describe or, or tell them to lean into when it comes to uh, addressing those so it doesn't com uh, compound into something later down the line? Well, look, I think that it's, it's wrong to suggest that one thing is right for everyone. Um, I mean, the risk of sounding self-serving, uh, if you go to my website, theinvisiblelion.com, You'll see like there's free blogs, there's free resources, there's free um, ideas about treatment. I think what's really important for individuals is to kind of go into what you feel interested to look at, to read about, to watch, to think about, and then to see what resonates. The best diagnostic is your own sense of actually, yeah, this makes sense to me. I want to know more about that. Well, that feels right to me. I want to pursue that. Um, you can put on the buffet, the menu of all the things that people can do to help themselves. And we kind of already know all those things. The real question is what's right for you. And I think that the, the biggest, probably the most important individual thing to think about is how do I feel in relation to this idea or this concept or this intervention? Um, and if you stumble into something that really kind of rings a faint bell, don't ignore that and don't let someone else tell you that you, no, 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 you should just meditate and you'll be fine. If uh, open water swimming is what feels like the thing that regulates you, then do that. Uh, don't worry that you're not meditating. It just, it's very important to be, to take medicine in this space as a kind of personal, uh, personal diagnostic activity. But look, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm like everyone else, I have my own bias, but I think that the beginning of it all is psychoeducation. The beginning of everything is education. When I mean, we educate ourselves on all sorts of things, and you, know, you educate people on food, you educate people on lifestyle, do it for a reason, because once people learn why something is something they should do, they might then choose to do it. It's the same with people's relationship with their nervous system, with their past, with their present, with their environment, with their relationships. Get to, get to understand the autonomic nervous system. Get to understand your relationship with threat and safety. And you start to see the world in a totally different light. It's like 
of course I feel like shit every time I do this. This is something that makes me feel afraid every single time I do it. And just because everyone says it shouldn't doesn't mean I have to believe that. Um, but you know, I live in my head. I'm the worst possible <laughs> advocate of all these things. I do things that I shouldn't do too often and things I should do too little. And uh, I'm over-intellectualized and that's been my strength in life and it's how I survive. So it's what I want to do. But it might not be what you want to do. But I do think that information is power yeah. and education can lead you to being your own doctor and your own therapist yeah. in this space. I agree. I agree. And I think that's part of the reason why we, we do this podcast as a service to inform people, to make their own choices. And um, one thing I am quite interested in, although we are running out of time, is uh, couples therapy, which is something that you practice. Um, we, um, me and my wife, have a, a practice of checking in. It's meant to be weekly. We don't do it weekly. We should do it weekly, but we just don't prioritize time for it. That's part of our sort of um, toolbox of uh, ensuring that everyone's on board, and um, we, we're in a um, uh, we're giving us the, the ourselves the best possible chance of a, a fully functioning and enjoyable relationship. What are things that you've come across in your practice, specifically with couples, that you wished or would wish upon every couple an activity to do, perhaps on a weekly or monthly basis, to really, you know. Uh, mitigate against obviously um, the, the issues that many people are suffering with? Sure, well look, that's a huge question. I think that uh, the headline question for me is can you have trauma and a great relationship? This is something I've wanted to answer for myself, okay. like selfishly. And the problem is that having relationships is as innate as going to the toilet for people who don't have trauma. You know, if, you're, if your nervous system's in homeostasis, you will collaborate and cooperate with people easily. And you will only very rarely be in conflict when the stakes are really high. Once that homeostasis is lost and the system is scrambled and it's either massively over or underactivated, uh, you don't do any of this well. And, and the next thing that happens is your sense of reality becomes a little bit skewy because the lion is always there, right? The lion that was there is there now because the body is telling you, you must be running from a lion because it's over or underactivated. And so the other person becomes a threat. Now, the biggest problem with relationships is that you get together because the other person should be your buddy and your resource. And then gradually these things filter in and then they become the threat. And so ask yourself, what is the point of this unless we are collaborators? You know, you get, it's so easy to drift into a relationship where it's basically a war because I want these things and experiences and you're not giving them to me and I'm going to make you give them to me yeah. one way or another yeah. or I'm going to ignore you. Uh, you know, the, one way or another, I'm going to freak you out or bully you or do whatever I need to do to get you to give me what I want. And that is the vicious cycle. Right? That's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So flip that around. And ask yourself in times of conflict with your partner, not what, do, what can I get them to give to me, but what do they really need me to give to them? The most counterintuitive thing you can ever do to a mammal that's in fight or flight is to ask it to say, what does the other person need right now? <laughs> right? Because what I need from a million years of evolution is to run away from you as far as I can or kill you. That's not great for collaborating with your couple. 
So instead of thinking like a dyad, like a line, think about it like a triangle. So along this line, I've got my buddy. You know, we're planning to try and have a great life together. That's our goal. And then another aspect of her over here is that person that annoys me and upsets me more than anyone in the whole world. Right? So could I use my buddy to help me to cope with that person? And the answer, if you put a little bit of effort into it, is yes. Um, it does require doing very weird things, like in conflict, asking the other person, you know, what is it that you most need right now? Or here's what I imagine you most need right now. It's amazing how quickly conflict can diffuse when you force yourself into the language and the position of collaboration. Because actually collaboration is also a threat response. Interestingly, um, social engagement is something we do uh, when we... In when we experience low levels of threat, like I go out there into the lobby and see a hundred people I don't know, for a mammal, that's a weird thing. Like you don't see dogs that just go into a pack of a hundred dogs and be like, how are you? What do you do for a living? How's your day going? No, they're all like, you know, there's, there's chaos. So we're quite sophisticated. We will, we will make friends, we'll make alliances. And you need to keep that channel online in your relationship, even when the threat has escalated to the point where you want to kill each other and run away. Um, so it's a little bit nuanced, but again, one of the things I do with couples is I ask them to make an inventory of what makes them feel safe, what makes them feel loved, what, how they like to play together. And these, they're always different. And we always assume the other person wants what we want. So I think one of the great skills in relationship is to remain regulated enough to remain interested in what's going on on the other side of the bridge on the other island is if all i'm doing is fighting for my own needs i'm going to assume the other person wants the same as me and therefore should be doing what i'm doing it's just not true and interestingly when you fall in love it doesn't matter because you have all these chemicals right and they make you feel safe like oxytocin makes you feel safe it makes you feel loved and so you just have fun. Yeah. You just yeah. do the, how do we want to play together? Yeah. And gradually the chemical soup retreats. And then you have to actually put work into making each other feel safe and making each other feel loved. And if you su succeed in that, you can have a lot of fun. Yeah. Because probably the things that you like doing at the beginning, you still like doing together. Absolutely. Ben, I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but um, I've got so many questions to ask around relationships uh, within the work environment, colleagues, um, but this has been awesome and uh, uh, we'll definitely put links to your website and uh, your work as well with the residential clinics and uh, uh, I'll be looking for you to, uh, to, to your talks as well um, but this has been great thank you so much for your time appreciate it sure well thank you very much for having me thanks Ben Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can support the pod by rating on Apple, follow along by hitting the subscribe button on Spotify, and you can catch all of our podcasts on YouTube if you enjoy seeing our smiley faces. Review show notes on the doctorskitchen.com website and sign up to our free weekly newsletters where we do deep dives into ingredients, the latest nutrition news, and of course, lots of recipes by subscribing to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter by going to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. And if you're looking to take your health further, why not download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store? I will see you here next time.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.